I must have held the button down too long. Could, could you hear me, though, when I was reading Scripture? You could read it, right? So if you couldn't hear it, you could hopefully get up there. Okay, so a little bit of background. David kills Goliath, finds himself in the service of Saul, the king of Israel. Saul's jealousy of David grows because he understands that God has rejected him, and David is now the new anointed king. And as we all know from our history books, because everybody loves history, right? Usurpers to a throne are not really welcomed by those already sitting on that throne. And so Saul does everything in his power to kill David and yet fails over and over and over again. Not because he was an incompetent killer, but because God was against him and God was for David. And still Saul persists. And so David has to flee for his life, eventually coming to his friend Jonathan, Saul's son, prince of Israel, to find out why Saul is so persistent in killing David. What have I done? Why do you keep trying to kill me? Or why does your father keep trying to kill me? And as we read the rest of the chapter, because we are going to read the rest of the chapter, I want you to keep something in mind. This storyline, it's more than just this, oh, how are you going to tell me if you're if your dad is going to kill me, David already knows. Jonathan's clueless. For some reason, either he just is not, he's obviously not privy to Saul anymore. Saul has stopped going to him with, the, with his intentions, the truth of his intentions. But as we read, as I read the rest of this chapter, I want you to listen for repeated thoughts and phrases. Because you remember, the, as we read Scripture, when you see something repeated over and over again, it's probably important. And so this is a hint. There is something that is repeated over and over again in this passage, and hopefully we'll catch it. Um, and I want you to especially note, and here's, here's your cheat sheet, listen for things that are like vows and oaths, covenants, promises made to each other, to Jonathan and David. So let's start and verse 12 to the end of the chapter. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety." May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain, remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the young man, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. 
And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. And the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked to leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. I love that. It just, duh, right? Oh, it is true. He's trying to kill me. That means he wants to kill David. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapon to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. The phrase, and we've used this phrase a number of times, losing the forest for the trees, refers to being so focused on the details that you begin to lose the meaning of the passage as a whole or whatever you're talking about as a whole or whatever you're discovering or looking at as a whole. In the case of Scripture, we begin to lose the meaning of the whole chapter by focusing too much on specific details. Uh, we do it all the time. I did it this week in my study. After about an hour, I went, wait, that, how did I go down this rabbit hole? And it was making, making me miss what was going on actually in the passage. For instance, Sometimes we ask the question, why did David pick up five stones before defeating Goliath? We're not told, so it doesn't matter. But we like to think about it. 
Or why did Micah, David's wife, have idols in their home? Really? Chosen king of Israel. Why would they have an idol in their home? We're not told. So it doesn't matter in the end. I mean, it matters. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't. It matters, but not to the point of the passage. Or to take a commentator who's way smarter than me, wrote a whole book on the book of 1 Samuel, who wrote how David's fear of Saul in chapter 20 teaches us that we should trust God no matter the circumstances. Now, there certainly seems to be a bit of fear in David. Obviously, he's running, he's fleeing. He's running to, to Jonathan. What's going on? So there may be inferenced some fear of David, but the concept of fear, the word fear, the idea of fear is nowhere in this chapter. It's not there. It's not spoken about. It's not said. It's not even really inferred, literally inferred. But what is clearly spoken, if you caught it, was the vows and the oaths and the covenant promise made between David and Jonathan. So what is a covenant promise? A covenant is a pledge of friendship and loyalty, of accountability between two two parties. And in the Bible, God makes a covenant between himself and Abraham that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the sands of the seashore and that through him the whole world would be blessed. God makes a covenant between himself and the people of Israel through the law that if they follow the commands of God, they will be blessed, but if they disobey the commands of God, they'll be cursed. God makes a covenant between himself and David, promising to always have a descendant of David on the throne. See, covenants are a big deal in Scripture. And they're more than just simply a, a promise or a pinky swear. Uh, the most modern understanding of a covenant promise is in marriage. And our society has even taken marriage and basically made it a pinky swear. I cross my fingers behind my back so that if it doesn't work out, then I could just get a divorce and I'll be done. I don't have to worry about it. It's diminished what a covenant actually is. In Scripture, covenants are way more important than just simple promises. They are binding agreements that, if they are broken, have major consequences, including the possibility of death in some cases. David takes the initiative and he reminds Jonathan of the covenant of the Lord that they made between one another. The details of this covenant were not given, but in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, Jonathan gives David his princely garments, his weapons, and his armor. See, Jonathan recognizes that David is to be the next king of Israel, not himself, not Jonathan, even though he's the prince. And so he makes a covenant with David, proclaiming his loyalty to David. And so David reminds Jonathan of this covenant promise in order to know why Jonathan is doing nothing to stop Saul from trying to kill him. If you have made this covenant with me, Jonathan, why aren't you trying to stop your, your dad? Why aren't you trying to stop Saul from, from killing me? You promised to love and to serve me as the future king. So then why is your father doing this? 
And why aren't you doing anything about it? But Jonathan is ignorant of Saul's intentions. And so together they devise a plan to find out what is Saul's true aim. Where does his heart really lie with David? And and it works. It works. Jonathan learns the truth about Saul's determination to end David's life, and, and he allows David to flee, to get away from Saul. And now David finds himself as a refugee, a fugitive on the run. But there's something that Jonathan says in verses 13 through 16 about the covenant. And I think it's really important. I think it's the center of this chapter. It's the center of this passage. And this is what he says in verses 13. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. So he's saying, if, your fa- if my father wants to kill you and I don't tell you, may I die. That's a pretty, pretty serious vow. And then verse 14, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. So there's a connection between a covenant, a covenant promise and steadfast love. If Jonathan survives long enough to see the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies, and when you hear that, don't think the Philistines, think Saul. So he's, Jonathan is promoting (laughs) Saul's taken off the throne and that David would replace him. That's a serious thing to say. If that happens, if he survives long enough to see that happen, he asked David to show him the steadfast love of the Lord and not to take away David's steadfast love from Jonathan's house, his descendants forever. And so what is steadfast love? To be steadfast is to endure patiently, to be reliable, faithful, and true to the end to be loyal, to be gracious. And the word love has a lot of meanings here. There's romantic love between a husband and wife, for instance. There's compassionate love, showing mercy to those in need. But the love that Jonathan is speaking of here, the word that he uses, the type of love that God shows his people when he remembers and keeps his covenant promises in spite of their treachery and adultery against him. Essentially, Jonathan is saying this. If I should live to see the day that you take the throne, remember this covenant made between you and me and do not kill me. Because, as we said before, right? New king gets on the throne, that king kills surviving members of the royal family so that nobody could take his place, nobody can make any claims to the throne. But if I should die before you become king, remember this covenant and do not kill any, of, any from my house so that my line would continue and not be cut off. That whatever, what, whatever happens, that the love that you have for me 
will be for me and for my family forever. Steadfast. No matter what happens. In his life, Jonathan never betrays or breaks his covenant promise with David, but he also doesn't leave his father's side. He continues to fight with Saul. He continues to serve him. Seeing David, as far as we know in Scripture, only once before his death. But David did not forget his covenant with Jonathan. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, after taking the throne and consolidating his rule, David shows steadfast love to Jonathan's son. And I love this name. Anybody who's going to have a baby in the coming years, I want you to name your child this. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. And he takes Mephibosheth into his own house. He cares for him. He's a boy who, uh, well, by that time, probably a young man who has a bad foot, can't fight, can't serve in the army. And he cares for him and he ensures, ensures that Jonathan's line would never end while he was still alive. See, here's, here's the, the point of this passage. David is the anointed king. And these words are telling the people of God that the true anointed king always keeps his covenant promises. No matter what happens. His love for those he makes that covenant with is steadfast. It never ends. No matter what happens. No matter what betrayal comes about. He will always keep his covenant promises. We're told in the book of Exodus that God gave Israel his law to obey, his commandments, his commands, do these. If they obeyed, they would be blessed and find life, but if they disobeyed, they would be cursed, they'd find death. And Israel agreed to the terms of that covenant promise. They sealed it in blood, literally, the blood of animals. But God knew that his people wouldn't be able to keep their end of the covenant. He knew they were going to fail. And so he graciously and steadfast lovingly, I don't even know if that's a word, but I love it, steadfast lovingly made, his way, made a way for the forgiveness of their disobedience and restoring them to the covenant promise by shedding the blood of an animal instead of their blood because to disobey God, what the curse is, is not just a removal of God's presence, but the death of the one who broke the covenant promise. And instead of doing that, God took the life of an animal instead of a person so that their sins might be forgiven. But there was a catch. It wasn't all sins for all time. It was a short period. It was not enough. It was temporary. And so the people had to continually offer sacrifices over and over and over again because they continually disobeyed the Lord over and over and over again. And then one day, hundreds of years after the time of David, God sends his son, Jesus, to die on the cross. He's born truly human and truly divine. He's living in 
perfect obedience to the law of God, fulfilling all that was required through that old covenant promise, obey me or die, he fulfills that. But there's still the problem of sin. Jesus was perfectly sinless, perfectly obedient, but as God's people, they were far from that. They weren't even close. And so a sacrifice was made on behalf of the people for their sinful disobedience of and rebellion against God's covenant commands. And that sacrifice was Christ himself, who willingly went to the cross. He died the death that we have, should have died, and every sin, past, present, and future, of the people of God for those who believe in him as their Savior, their treasure, and their Lord, was forgiven. Not will be forgiven, was forgiven. As Christ was sitting with his disciples during the Last Supper on the night of the Jewish Passover, which is really important, and I, I hope you, we can get this, that the night, we, we do communion, we did it last week, we do communion and we talk about his, what he says at the Last Supper and there's a famous painting of it and all that kind of stuff. The realization of why this happens on the Jewish Passover. So the Passover is a celebration by the Jewish people of God's passing over the houses of those who trusted in him so that their firstborn sons may not die. So the angel of death comes, and in order to prevent that from happening, they slay a lamb, and they put the blood on the doorposts, and the angel of death passes over that house. If it, he sees the blood covering that door, passes over that house, and does not kill the firstborn. But every other house that refuses to obey the command of God and does not put the blood on it is not passed over and the firstborn son is taken. So for Christ to stand before his disciples on the day of Passover, on, during the feast of the Passover, and to say these words, this is what he says, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my covenant, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here is Jesus Christ, the first, only begotten Son of God, on the day of Passover, celebrating the Jews not having their firstborn taken. And he says, this is, I'm going to sacrifice myself. I am the Lamb of God. I am the one who will shed my blood. And you won't put it on your doorpost. It's going to cover you in your heart. It's going to cover you. And it's, it's not a temporary covering. It's a permanent covering. And your sins are all forgiven, which means they're not held against you. Which means the covenant promise of God's steadfast love is going to happen, and it's going to remain true. And you will be my people forever and ever and ever. 
Through Christ's sacrificial blood on the cross, a new covenant is made between the Lord and his people. The old covenant is gone because it's been accomplished. It's been fulfilled. It's done. And the new covenant has come. For the old covenant of perfect obedience to law was fulfilled in Christ and counted to those who believe. The title of this message is, Who is the True King? Remember that Jonathan had to make a choice. Who does he follow? Does he follow Saul, his father, or David, who he knows is the rightful king? And remember, too, that Saul at one point had promised Jonathan not too long before this incident in chapter 20 that he would not kill David. And then David has success with the Philistines, and that's gone. It's out, it's out the window. Saul broke his promise. He broke his oath and vow to Jonathan. David, though, was faithful in keeping his word. He was faithful in keeping his covenant promise. He was the true anointed king of Israel, but even David was an imperfect king. He was still human, and if you read the rest of his story of his life, and we're going to get there eventually, he, he messed up royally and had huge consequences for his sin. His ability to keep the covenant with Jonathan was an example to God's people that the anointed king would keep his covenant promises, but even he couldn't keep the promise made between God and his people because he was sinful. David was sinful. Pointing the people of God to look forward to the true king who would come and fulfill the whole covenant for all time. So we have to ask ourselves today, who is our true king? Who or what do we put first in our lives? Who do we trust? This is extremely raw for me. When the good Lord opens eyes and sanctifies because of football. Bless my son's heart. He asked me, Dad, is there anything that you love more than Jesus? (laughs) Yep, yeah. Yes, there are times that God reveals to me that there are things that I put my trust in that in the end are worthless. Sports. Now, I have to make an caveat caveat here or a... Maybe a little explanation here. When I say worthless, I mean unable to fulfill what they promise or what I think they promise. So not worthless like they're not worth anything. Packers are awesome. Woo! Die hard to the end. But perhaps we are putting our trust in our spouse. Or, like me in high school and in college, my desire for a spouse or a relationship. Or perhaps we're putting our trust in our friends or our neighbors, feelings, money, work, satisfaction, joy, government, 
refunds, uh, medicine. I mean, like, should we just keep going? Like, who do we put our trust in ultimately? I mean, these, I would have to say, uh, the, the beauty of the, okay, I have, to, I have to catch what I'm saying here or watch what I'm saying so I, I don't want to misunderstand. There are a lot of things in this world that are beautiful and wonderful and are meant by God to point us to Him. And as human beings, we have twisted them and made them God when they are never meant to be our King. Is it wrong to enjoy sports or your spouse or your children or your work or money? Is it, is it wrong to enjoy those things? Absolutely not. What's wrong is when they become king. And as my son said, do we love them more than Jesus in that moment? And when we realize that we have broken the covenant promise with God, how do we respond if we are his people? Because the reality is that all of these things make promises and none of them fulfill it. Or maybe we think they make a promise when they don't make that promise. And then when they don't fulfill it, we're angry. How dare they not fulfill it? For crying out loud, doesn't, he, doesn't Aaron Rodgers know that I am counting on him to give me a good Sunday? I got to preach in the morning, gosh darn it. He has no clue. The things of this world, they cannot in and of themselves drive me to God. And to p- total and pure satisfaction. It may come, satisfaction may come for a moment, but not for all time. The things of this world, including our relationships, will all pass away. And the reality is that none of them can save us. None of them can fully satisfy. None of them will last. I love my wife. The day is going to come when she's going to die. And if she is my all, when she's gone, what is that going to do for me? I have made her my God and my king. And she failed in fulfilling that. That's not her fault. It's my fault. How do I respond to that? If I lose my job, if we suddenly go bankrupt, if I lose my own life, I find out I have cancer. If every person you've ever liked or gone out with is broken up with you, including your wife, join the club because they cannot fulfill. They just can't. They never will. In situations and in, in Scripture like this, these covenant promises is a reminder to us that Who is our true king? Who do we lift and hold high? Who is worthy of being our king? I love Katie, but she's a horrible king, I'm telling you. Aaron Rodgers, I know you all have feelings about him one way or the other, and we all are in agreement. He is a horrible king. Jobs and money and satisfaction in this world is a horrible king because it never lasts. They cannot save us. They cannot fulfill us. They cannot make us right before God. And so 
if we put our trust, if we make our king something of this world or someone of this world, in the end, we will find ourselves in hell for all eternity, away from the presence of God, our true king. And my hope and my prayer is that we would remember if we are not a child of God, if we have not put our faith in Christ, that's the reality of what we look forward to or what we have for us. But if we believe and we, we have Christ as our king, God as our true king, the only one who can save us, and he fulfills it all. And his steadfast love endures forever. 1 John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you hear that? If we confess our sins, even as God's people, yes, okay, I'm, I feel like I am saved. I am very confident I am a child of God. I stand here and say very not because me, but because God has saved me. But even as a child of God, I know that if I confess my sins, which were many last night, He is faithful and just to forgive us. He is steadfast. He is patient. And His love for us, He's calling us confess your sins before me, Mark, and I will forgive you. And I stand here as a child of God who is forgiven and have confidence to say, Christ is my king. And in those moments when he's not, the king, he doesn't tap me on the shoulder. He usually slaps me in the back of the head with my son's words and says, yeah, I'm on the throne, Mark. I'm on the throne. Remember who I am and who you are in me. Because it is only through confession of our sinful rebellion and belief in Christ as Savior, treasure, and Lord that our sins are forgiven and we enter the new covenant. Without Christ, we are under the old covenant, striving to be a good person all the time, perfectly. And this new covenant in Christ is a covenant of grace, not works. It's a covenant of faith, not ritual. And like David, those who enter this covenant with the anointed king can always be assured that he will always keep his covenant promise. Which is why as his son today, I can stand up here and confidently say, I am a child of God And I am forgiven because God has told me so and his love is steadfast to the end for those who love him and believe in him. So I'll I'll end with this, this one question. Okay, so maybe two. You have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, who is our king? Who are we proclaiming as worthy for us to bow down and worship? Who who is your king? And will you confess your sins 
and receive forgiveness. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to your worthiness. You are worthy of being our king. And unlike David, God, who was sinful and human, Father, your son was perfect and you sacrificed him. And for those of us, Father, who, who you forgive and we confess our sins and we pro- publicly proclaim that you are our king, God, you forgive us and you cleanse us of our rebellion always. You don't hold it against us. You pass over us, Father, because your son's blood covers us. There is no one in this world worthy of our worship, worthy of our honor and praise above you, Father. Help us as your people to live this out, God, to not stand in condemnation for, God, we are forgiven and we are your children, but we stand in confidence knowing, oh God, that you are faithful and just and will forgive us when we stray from you. But Father, for those who do not know you, do not believe in you, that you are not their king, I pray, Father, they would, they would feel a holy condemnation from you, God, a conviction of heart and soul and mind, and that they would turn from their ways, boot off the throne of their hearts, whatever is there, and that, Father, you would come and take their place. That you would be the king of their life for you and your glory and for our joy, Father. We ask this in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our final song?